Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. And so as we dive deeper into your word tonight, we pray that your spirit would do that miraculous work in our life and illuminate these words so that we would see that they are the very words of God. Lord, uh, we do pray this not so that we would be smarter sinners, but so that we would walk more closely with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I watched a movie called The Stepford Wives. It's a satire of 1950s America nuclear families. And it's actually, to be honest, a bit of a creepy movie. It's about a group of men who create robot wives. The reason why they do this is because they want to eliminate everything that offends them in order to have a perfect relationship. And two things kind of become clear throughout the movie. First, these men are uh, are quite insecure. Let husbands, you know, let the reader understand. Uh, Second, that actually a Stepford wife that agrees with everything you say and does everything you want them to do, it's actually not real. A Stepford wife is not a real wife, but one who is made in the image of man. And so the husband and wife don't have a real relationship together. They don't have genuine relationship. What's interesting is that in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, he warns us that we can fall into the trap of doing the same thing with God. That is, when we pick and choose what we like in the Bible, we can create a Stepford God. This is what he says. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Tonight we're looking at the big question, can we trust the Bible today? And the answer to that question is yes. Good, done, let's go home. The reality is that yes, we can trust the Bible, but often we find it hard. I mean, have you read the Bible? It contains polygamy, holy wars, outdated gender norms. It speaks about judgment and personal holiness. So whether you call yourself a progressive or a conservative or something in between, the Bible will offend you. And the danger is that we want to eliminate things that offend us. So we end up turning a blind eye to certain parts of the Bible because we don't like it. But the reality is, as Tim Keller says, we actually create a Stepford God. And a Stepford God is a problem because a Stepford God can't give you real hope. A Stepford God can't give you lasting joy. A Stepford God can't forgive you of your sin and it cannot give you the hope of eternal life. Ultimately, you can't have a real relationship with this kind of Stepford God. And so the question, can I trust the Bible today? It doesn't start out there with friends and family and people who are yet to know Jesus Christ. It actually starts in here. It starts in our hearts, in the heart of God's people. And so my hope is that over the coming weeks, as we look at some of these questions, we will dive deeper into God's word and wrestle with what this means for us and the world we live in. 
And then from that place, from that transformed place, that we will be better equipped to engage with the people that God has put in our life. And so each week we're going to do three things. We're going to listen, learn, and link. We're going to listen to the objections people have so we can put their um, opinions in the right context. We're going to learn from the Bible to see what God has to say to us in his word. And then we're going to link it to some next steps. So we might consider how we can take what we've learned and actually engage with people that God has put in our life. And so tonight, they're going to be our three points. The first is listening to others. Um, I don't know if you know this, but in 2017, the McCrindle Research Centre did a survey into spirituality in Australia and came up with some really interesting statistics. One of them was they asked a whole bunch of people, um, what is, what's the thing most likely... What's the thing that will most likely, most likely uh, cause you to change your opinion about God? And what are some of the things that are least likely to change your opinion about God? Um, interestingly, 55% of people said knowing that a celebrity is a Christian will not change their opinion about God. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, like, we don't really care if Michael Jordan's a Christian or not. Well, we do care because we want him in heaven. But, uh, yeah, that people don't really... That's not a really big issue. The other thing they found out was that two-thirds of Australians either identify as religious or spiritual. Two-thirds. They also found out that one of the greatest blockers for people coming to faith in Jesus, 70% 70 of people said the reliability of the Bible is one thing that stopped them. Interestingly, 56% of people said a conversation, a personal conversation with someone, would they would be willing to change their mind. So that old kind of idea about religion and spirituality being dead in Australia, according to this research, is actually not true. That people are far more interested in God than we first thought, and also they're willing to engage with other people. You see, in an ever-growing progressive and secular world, People are using the truth of the world to evaluate the truth of Christianity. And so all di these different ideas about God exists. And they're filled, with, they're filled with different experiences and emotions and expectations. They range from anger to confusion, frustration to sadness. And so people will say things like, if I leave God alone, he will leave me alone. Have you heard that before? Or they say, simply, they just say, you know what, I just don't have time for God. But if we scratch below the surface, there is actually more going on. One of the things that I noticed when moving to Orange last year was that people are really polite in Orange. Have you noticed that? Some of them are actually a little bit too polite. And so if you want to have a real conversation about God, Jesus, or the Bible, you have to kind of somehow push below that politeness so you can have a real conversation. The McCrindle study suggests that if we get to that real conversation, that we will actually be able to chat about God and the Bible. And so I think there are three common objections to trusting the Bible. The first is the, oh, and each of them has a slogan. So the first objection is the historical objection. The slogan here is, we can't really know for sure. Some will say that the Bible was written so far ago that we actually can't know for sure about the events, and therefore I don't need to deal with the Bible. 
The second objection is the cultural objection. This too has a slogan. That's just your interpretation. Have you heard that before? People will argue that the Bible is regressive because it's offensive and obsolete. You know, the human race has progressed so far since the Bible was written that its teachings about things like slaves and gender roles and sexuality, well, they're actually offensive to sophisticated people. You know, sophisticated people like you and me. People say that's your interpretation so they don't need to deal with the Bible. Uh, The third objection is a personal objection. The slogan here is, I just can't believe in a God who would say that. And I think that's the hardest objection. Because rather than dealing with thoughts and ideas that are out there, when someone says, I can't believe in a God who who would say that, they're actually talking about what's in here. They're reflecting their own experience and their emotion and their expectation. Whether it's because of what someone has said to them or a church has done to them, or even just what they have read in the newspaper about church or or Christianity. And so if 56% of people are willing to discuss and to have a personal conversation, how would we chat about these three objections with people? I want to go through each of them just quickly. So the first one is, um, is the historical objection. Now tonight we have been reading from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is Luke's account of how the, uh, the message of Jesus left Jerusalem and went to the ends of the earth. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas are spreading the word of God and they arrive in a town of Thessalonica. Have a look at verse 2 with me. If you've got your Bible open, Acts chapter 17, verse 2. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now we don't know the passage that Bible was teaching, sorry, that Paul was teaching from. He could have been preaching from Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7 or Ezekiel 37 or Isaiah 49 or Isaiah 53.6. I mean, there's no limit to the material that Paul could have used in pointing out how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus. And Luke doesn't just want us to focus on the message, but also the method. Did you notice that? The method? Paul reasoned with them. That is, he proved through logic He didn't embellish or massage the message. He laid it out the scriptures plainly and engaged their minds so they would see that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah. So why do these people in Thessalonica, who have neither seen or heard of Jesus at all before, why do they put their trust in Jesus all of a sudden? Because the credibility and the reliability of the New Testament comes from those who wrote it. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, if we go to the next slide, he tells us why he wrote his gospel and how he went about do it, doing it. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, if we go to the next slide, we read this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Verse 4 so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. 
Luke, the gospel writer, was alive in the first century. He would have known the religious myths, the mystery cults. He would have known about the Greek gods and people like Mythos and other things like that. And he wants us to know that what he writes about is not a borrowed myth from the first century. It's not from some sort of religious cult. What Luke is doing is like a courtroom lawyer. He gathers together his eyewitnesses and puts them in a stand so they can testify to the truth of what they have seen. Luke's gospel is an eyewitness account. And even though he's writing like 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, those who saw the resurrected Jesus are still alive when he writes his gospel, which means you can actually go and check his sources. You can ask questions of these people. So that's 30 to 40 years, even closer than this, in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people and most of them are still alive. Again, the implication is you can go and ask the eyewitnesses if they saw the resurrected Jesus. That's 15 to 20 years after the resurrected Jesus. Philippians 2. Have you read it? It's this beautiful psalm that the early church used to sing about the divinity of Jesus. It talks about his divinity, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Written, uh, the book Philippians was written no more than 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, which means that hymn was written before that. Again, go and test the eyewitnesses. Go ask the questions of them and the apostles these eyewitnesses, history testifies to the fact that they gave up their life. They were killed for, for proclaiming the truth of a resurrected Jesus. No one gives up their life for a lunatic, for a liar. People give up their, their life if they have seen the resurrected Jesus in person. And that's what they did. And so if the Gospels are written by eyewitness accounts... You can and should trust the Bible historically. I don't know how you came to church tonight. I don't know what place you're at with God. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Whether you've waltzed through the door on the high of kick, like some of our teenagers, uh, or you've struggled to come along filled with guilt of what's been going on in your life. But friends, know this, that your place as one of God's children is assured by a historical event, the death of Jesus. The forgiveness of your sins is certain through a historical event, the death of Jesus on the cross, and the promise of eternal life that God gives you is guaranteed because the historical resurrection of Jesus that the eyewitness testified to. So friends, let's not have a fear about what people think about the reliability of the Bible. In conversation, let's do what Paul does in Acts 17. He takes people to the eyewitnesses and shows them their account so they may believe in Jesus. Now that's the hist historical side of things. I think the second objection is actually the one that's more present today, the cultural objection. If we go back to Acts chapter 17, grab your Bibles, have a look at Acts chapter 17, because 
After preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas, that two things happen. One is that the, the followers of Jesus grows and also the persecution of God's people grows as well. So Paul and Silas, they flee the city and they go to a nearby city called Berea, which is just down the road. When I say down the road, it's like 75 k's. So it would be the same as, say, Orange to Yeovil. I feel like I've been in Orange long enough that I know where Yeovil is. Okay, so 75 k's, Orange to Yeovil, that's about how far they go. They roll into town, they go to the synagogue, and they keep preaching the good news of Jesus. Have a look at verse 11 with me. (coughs) The people here were more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. Why are the Bereans celebrated for their noble character? It's kind of nice, really, isn't it? The Bible calls you noble. Well, don't be misled because the Bereans are not postmodern. They aren't examining the scriptures to see subjectively what truth they can take out of this for themselves. They're celebrated because after examining and investigating and devoting themselves to the scriptures, they understand that what Paul is speaking is not Paul's truth. It is God's truth. And as God's truth, the Bible transcends time and culture. You see, in our 21st, secular, 21st century secular society, we're told what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. And we kind of like this, if we're honest. We like this because it places me in the driver's seat. I get to look at the smorgasbord of truth and determine what best suits my life and who I will answer to. If I get to choose what truth fits my life, ultimately... The only person I answer to is myself. So when you take the Bible, written a couple of thousand years ago, and say this is a truth that transcends time, our society finds that hard and difficult. To say that there's meaning and truth in the Bible, people will say, is dangerously crushing for individual expression. That it's counterproductive to people creating their authentic self. But have a look at what Peter says about how we should interpret the truth of the Bible. If we go to the next slide, 2 Peter chapter 1, from verse 17, Peter says, For he, that's Jesus, received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter here is recalling the transfiguration of Jesus that we read about in Mark chapter 9. He does that because he was physically present. He's an eyewitness. He saw it with his own eyes. Um, Peter's account of Jesus involves all the senses. Okay, maybe not taste because that's weird, but he sees Jesus, he smells Jesus, he hears Jesus, he even touched the resurrected Jesus. And in Mark chapter 9, he tells us, that he saw the glory of God and he didn't understand what was happening. So Peter understands there's a limitation to being an eyewitness. That is, you can see something but not understand it. You need to interpret it. That's how we actually learn truth. 
Um, despite of what our society might say, we are not blank canvases that come to truth to interpret it how we best see fit. Uh, we need interpretation so that we may best understand it. But in this event, who interprets the event for Peter? Verse 17, it's God the Father. God speaks from heaven so that Peter would know the truth that is happening in front of him. If we go to the next slide, 1 Peter chapter 2, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter says this, Above all, you know this, no prophet of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is God who interprets God's truth so that we may know this truth. He confirms that scripture is truth, his truth. So when we say that the Bible is the word of God, we're not trying to raise this Bible up to be at some sort of level in which we worship it. No, we're saying that you and I are blind to knowing the truth about God. And we can only know God if he acts, if he reveals himself to us. And therefore the true and living God has accommodated us in this blindness and he's revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us publicly in his son and also through his word in human language. Just think about that for a second. God doesn't need to speak human language. God doesn't need to speak English or Chinese or... Um, uh, I'd go through a bunch of them. I'm going to miss a couple. Uh, gee, but God, in his divine wisdom, chooses to accommodate us and communicates to us through human language and speak so that us as finite beings might know him and come to love him and serve him. Since the Bible is the word of God, it transcends time and it transcends culture. It means that no church, no church leader, no individual stands over the scriptures at all. It means that scriptures, as the word of God, stands over us. It corrects us. It judges us because it is God's truth. So whether you call yourself a progressive, a conservative, or somewhere in between you will find something in the Bible that offends you. You should find something in the Bible that offends you. If you can't find something in the Bible that offends you, you may have, your, you may have too much of a bias against what the Bible says. Now, since we don't have time to look at everything that offends us in the Bible, you guys want to get to supper, um, here are two questions that we need to ask when we are culturally offended by the Bible. I think the first question, when we encounter a passage that offends us, we need to consider that it might not teach what we think it teaches. My wife, uh, my wife, my daughter Piper has just fallen in love with the movie The Princess Bride. Has anyone seen it? Great movie. She loves um, when that guy says, inconceivable, 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 to which Dan Montoya replies, you keep using that word but I do not think it means what you think it means. Sometimes we are offended by the Bible because we've actually misunderstood what it's talking about. 
And so just as the Bible is written by human authors, we need to use human methods to discern what it's actually talking about. We need to ask questions about context, the original context, the original audience, and the author's intent as these things are written. Like the Bereans in Acts 17, we need to eagerly examine the scriptures to work out what God is saying and what is his truth so we can understand that correctly. (coughs) Second, if we're offended by the Bible, it might be that our assumption is that our culture is superior to all other cultures. You see this when you compare Eastern and Western cultures or what's called guilt culture and shame culture. So I was chatting to a friend called Sam um, a couple of weeks ago who was sharing his faith with a work colleague and he was discussing about what the Bible says about sexuality. And so his work colleague, who's from Iran, right, not a Christian, was totally on board with everything the Bible said about sexuality and its sexual ethic. But when Sam explained grace and God's free forgiveness, he was offended. He said, it is shameful for someone to forgive someone else. Which is fascinating, right? Because in our Western culture, it's completely the opposite. Our Western society would say that the sexual ethic of the Bible is offensive. Get rid of it. But we as Westerners, we love the grace and free forgiveness that comes from God. And so we actually can't say that one culture is superior to the other. When we read the Bible, we're always reading through the lenses of our culture. And when we say that's so regressive or that's so offensive, what we're really saying is that this is offensive because my culture has a problem with it. And so what we need to do is, again, like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, we need to examine the scriptures. We need to do the hard work of taking off our cultural lenses so we may read the Bible as it was originally intended and see it as God's truth. So that means you can and should trust the Bible historically. You can and should trust the Bible culturally. But if it's so clear, why is there a problem? Why do people not want to trust the Bible? I take it that ultimately the lack of trust comes down to our own personal objections. Personal objections that we need to confront. Uh, Let's have a look at 2 Timothy uh, uh, chapter 3. It'll come up on the screen. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. The Bible rests on the simple fact, friends, that God is a God who speaks and God has spoken in human history. The word for inspired literally means breathed out by God. So each of the 66 books in the Bible has two authors, a human author and God as its author. So while writing is with human hands and human languages and even human colloquialisms, the words, the message and truth comes from God, which means there's a beautiful unity to the Bible. The words of the prophets, the Son of God and the apostles are all the word of God. And it has a unified message. God's plan to put to death the evil and sin of this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus 
senior youth, this is what we looked at last term. Uh, And verse 15, that it's sufficient for our salvation. It contains all you need to be forgiven of your sin and have a relationship with God. So that if tomorrow you were to wake up on a desert island, now I don't know where that would be because we live far from the beach, but if you were to live, if you were to wake up on a desert island and a Bible was to wash ashore, you have everything you need, humanly speaking, to know that you are sinful, that God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you. The Bible is sufficient for our salvation. And finally, if it's the word of God, it means it has the authority of God as well. Through the word of God, God's rule and authority is expressed on earth. Through the word of God, Christ rules his church. And as we submit to the word of God in our heart and in our mind and in our lives... Jesus takes his rule in our life. Since the word of God is given by the Spirit, it's the work of the Spirit that allows us to receive these as the very true and living words of God. And by the empowering work of the Spirit, these words, when we read it to ourselves, when we read it aloud, when it's proclaimed, they are the very words of God. I mean, if I, could, if I told you that tomorrow morning you could hear God speak. Wouldn't you want to listen? If you could hear about what God thinks of you and has done for you, don't you want to find out? Friends, we have that in the Bible, in God's word. And ultimately, to trust the Bible is the work of God. You don't need to be a Christian to read the Bible. Did you know that? You don't. You don't. You don't need to be a Christian to understand the words of the Bible. But you need the work of God's Spirit to convict you that they are true. And it's only the illuminating work of the Spirit that convicts us. Which means, as Christians, we might have all the data, we might have all the corresponding facts, we might have all the evidence of our side, but it doesn't have the power to convince someone that these scriptures are true. It is only through the work of God, which is actually a really good thing because convincing people to trust in God's word is not left on our shoulders, but is what God does through his word and by his spirit. But the temptation, if this is the authority of word of God, is to turn a blind eye to the things that we personally object to, the things that rub us the wrong way. We want to cut them out. We don't want to deal with them. But as Tim Keller said, the danger is that we end up with a Stepford God if we do that with the Bible. You see, unless you have a completely authoritative Bible that can contradict you and that can challenge you, you've got a Stepford God. And a Stepford God won't forgive you of your sin or give you eternal life. A Stepford God who agrees with you with everything won't give you hope and rest and peace. Uh, you know, it's often said that, uh, sometimes it's said that having a high view of the Bible leads to a cold faith. And I completely disagree with that. I think a high view of the Bible is actually the root that grows a deep relationship with God. But it means that we need to really wrestle with the parts of the Bible that personally we object to. 
So friend, just as a side note, can I ask, when was the last time that you were reading the Bible and it brought you to your knees in prayer? I mean, when was the last time you read something in the Bible and you said, God, you are right and I am wrong, please forgive me. Because it's only when we humbly sit under God's word and let this truth transform us that God would grow us to trust his word and depend on him more. See, we can and should trust the Bible historically, culturally and personally, but how do we chat to other people about it? For the sake of time, I've gone too long, I'm only going to say one thing. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. He, uh, he was a famous preacher and he says he likens the Bible to a caged lion. He says the problem with Christians is that we're like soldiers trying to defend the lion from attackers. And then he says Christians should kindly step back and open the door and let the lion out. Oofed. You feel the weight of that? He says, I believe that the best way of defending him, for he will take care of himself, the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Can you see C.S. Lewis's point? As we link to other people, as we engage with other people, as we take this truth to talk about it with people that God has put in our life, C.S. Lewis, just to be careful, is not saying that we should offend people. He's not saying be a jerk. But he is saying, don't be ashamed of the Bible. He's saying that we need to take time. We need to stop spending so much time defending it. Because in reality, God is a big God who can defend himself. If the Bible is the word of God and we can trust it historically, culturally and personally, then I think, friends, we need to spend less time defending it and just more time sharing it with other people and speaking about it in our lives with our friends and with people who are yet to know Jesus. I think we do this in two ways. First, we share our struggles. That is, we share where we have found challenges and been personally confronted by the Bible. I think when we share that, we actually smash that false perception that Christians are perfect and have all the answers. Because you and I know that that's not true. So when we share our struggles, we invite people to step into our shoes, to sit under God's word and to wrestle, with, uh, wrestle against it with us. So I think the first thing we do is we share our struggles. The second thing we do is share our confidence. That is, if we find hope and life and peace in the words of scriptures, we should never be ashamed of that, but we should share that with other people. Like I said before, God in his kindness doesn't rely on us and the fanciness of our words or our ability to debate to convict people of their need to change. Like Paul in Acts chapter 17, he calls us to share his word, our hopes and our fears with it, and he will use that by the power of his spirit to transform people's lives. So let it out of its cage and let God do his work. We've seen tonight that we, can, um, that we can historically be confident of what the Bible says, that we can have um, culturally we can be confident and trust in what it says, and personally, um, and God calls us to share it with other people. So that's not an easy thing to do. So how about I pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for the words of the Bible. We thank you that you're a God who has not left us alone in the dark, but that you have revealed yourself to us by your Son and through your word. And so, Lord, help us to wrestle with the words of Scripture. Help us to wrestle with your revelation. Help us to do that hard heart work as we sit under your word. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us confidence and opportunities and wisdom in knowing when and how to speak about your word with the people that you've put in our lives. Give us courage to share our struggles and to speak of the confidence that you give us. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to stand and sing our next song. Thanks, Musos.